Welcome to C-Suite Radio. Hey, Open Mic Podcast listeners. Want to share your opinions, give me feedback, or tell me what you're thinking? If you do, send me a voice message. Voice messages are an easy way for you to send me audio that might end up in future episodes of the podcast. They're the latest feature from Anchor, the platform that I use to make this show. Here are some things that I would love to hear from you. What questions do you have for me? What did you think of the episode? What did you think of the topic? Who should I interview next? Make up a theme song. I don't know. Do your best impression of me. I'll see all of your messages and I might add them into a future episode. Anchor makes that part super easy. You can send me a voice message right now from wherever you're at, wherever you're listening. Just tap the link in my show notes and I can't wait to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to the Open Mic Podcast. Until next time, cheers and be well and enjoy today's episode. It's time for the Open Mic Podcast with your host, Brett Allen. Broadcasting live from the Bay Area studios, here at the Open Mic, no topic is off limits. And of course, you never know who may stop by. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Three, two, one, we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Super excited to be here with you today. We have an amazing guest coming up, Annie Duke. She is the author of Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. She's also a retired World Series of Poker champion. She retired back in 2012, and she is joining us on the podcast today. Man, oh man, this is a great conversation. I'm excited for you to give it a listen. Thank you so much for listening in and being a part of the show. Be sure to head over to our website, theopenmicpodcast.net. For all things open mic, some amazing guests coming up on the show. But without further ado, Annie Duke, welcome into the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, I am very honored to have you on the podcast. Annie Duke is a retired now, I would say, would be the best way to describe it, mm-hmm. professional poker player. And she has written an amazing book. I mentioned it in the intro, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. And I find this book so intriguing. And if you are in business, if you're listening to the show, whatever it is that you're doing, you need to read this book because it's absolutely amazing. And it's provided lots of great things for me at this point. So thank you for writing it. I really do appreciate it. Let's talk about the book. Let's just dive right in and start with why you decided to write this book in particular. So I, I think I think generally uh, it really mainly just comes... I, I, from I think it's organic mm-hmm. to my background. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I started off my adult life as an academic, and I was studying cognitive science at the University of Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, I took this really big left turn in my life and became a poker player. And so, and, and the way that that happened was that at, at the end of graduate school, five years in, um, I actually got sick. And I really needed recuperation time. And I happened to get sick just as I was supposed to be going out for my job talks for my to become a professor. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was going to just take a year to recuperate and then go back, on, you know, into academics onto the job market. And that was my plan. But during that year, I needed money. And so I started I started playing poker during that year, um, really kind of in order to make ends meet during the meantime. And 
you know, obviously I ended up playing for 18 years and it took me a long time to get back to academics. But, mm-hmm. um, so I, now I, I sort of end up with this collision of these two paths, right? Sure. The, the collision of the academic work that I had done in studying, uh, cognitive science in particular, I, w- I was thinking about how people learn, um, particularly in this case, how kids learn, but really understanding in general how human beings are interacting with the world and with information. And then this real world, fast paced decision making problem where you were making these decisions where the quality of your decision and the particular outcome you got were not perfectly linked together. It wasn't like if I make a great decision about a great hand that I have a great result every time. I I could Mm -hmm. win or I could lose. And I could also make very poor decisions about a very poor hand. And it didn't mean that I was going to lose every time I could win or lose. And what happened was that right around 2002, so this would be like eight years into my poker career, I got asked by a hedge fund to come speak to their options traders Mm -hmm. um, about how this thing that I was doing at the poker table might inform the way that they were thinking about risk. Um, And that was the first time that I, you know, I, I, in a real explicit way, in a way where I was thinking like, how can I explain how cognitive science and poker talk to each other? Wow. You know, how, how they sort of support each other. Now, obviously, I've been thinking about it because I was bringing to bear my academic background onto uh, what I was doing at the poker table. But I wasn't necessarily thinking about that in a super explicit way. And certainly, I wasn't thinking explicitly how poker might talk back. Sure. So, I, I you know, I, get, I thought about that. I gave that talk. That ended up turning into a very big part of my life. Um, giving talks and doing consulting on decision strategy. And now I started thinking about the way that these things speak to each other, actually in both directions. I started teaching poker, thinking about the way that cognitive science would really inform the way that you're thinking about poker. And I wrote a couple of books that were sort of from that frame. But then now I'm doing all this talking about how poker might inform the way that we think about cognitive science, both, both in terms of the way that you go wrong uh, the ways that you go wrong and, and the ways that you might go right. So I think that I ended up writing this book because it organically came out of all of these keynotes that I was doing, all of this consulting I was doing where I felt like, um, I don't know, I just, I just kind of felt like I had something to say about it that was unique because I had this background that was so unique to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I felt like, I, I, I mean, I just felt like maybe I could contribute something because of this weird path that I had taken. I, I think that makes perfect sense. And I have talked to one of your counterparts, Alec Torelli. I'm not sure if you know. Yeah. Okay. So I think your agent actually connected me with him. She's connected me with a few people. But when I was talking to Alec, I, as he was explaining things, it made perfect sense how these two worlds connect. And now talking to you and, and understanding why you wrote the book, I see that clearly even more because in poker, there's so many things that go into play when it comes to making decisions and choices and not having all the information that it it would, it, it's normal that you could write something like this. I think you could probably write more books. I would love that if you did that. Not, 
my next book is due in <laughs> the summer. So, so you're going to see another book for me. Well, Probably. I want a copy because I find it so interesting. I've read it twice. Now, I want to talk about a couple different things that I think are important because as an entrepreneur and people who are in business, there's this whole conversation about luck versus skill. And you talk about that in the book. If you wouldn't mind just kind of expounding on that just a little bit about, I know what you mean, but for those who haven't read it, you know, we all kind of have this strong bias to process our own outcomes as unlucky or our good outcomes, you know, a skill. And it sort of can be confusing to some people. What what are some thoughts that you have on that and how we can understand that better when it comes to the successes or, or the failures that we have in our life personally, whether it's in business or relationships or any kind of decision-making process that we might be involved in. Sure. So, um, gosh, there's a, there's a lot of ways into this. So let me, let me try to think about, uh, how I can sort of, let, let me give just a broad structure. First yeah, of and course. Then we can dig down. Feel free. Um, from there. <laughs> so, so, um, Essentially, what this is, this is what you can think about in terms of your decision making is you make a decision. And obviously, that's skill, right? Like you're, you're making a decision, you're trying to figure out which among the options under consideration you're going to choose. Um, and that that's an act of skill. And when you choose an option, when you make a choice mm-hmm. about what you're going to do, that choice doesn't determine the exact thing that's going to occur. Sure. It all, what it determines is the set of possible things that might occur and how often those particular things will occur, will occur. Now, sometimes, you know, sometimes it, it basically determines the exact thing that will occur. Like, for example, if, I, if I'm two feet from the car in front of me and I slam on the accelerator, it, you know, it's, it's pretty determined that I'm going to ram into the car in front of me. <laughs> yes, I would say so. <laughs> but interestingly enough, even then, there there are other possibilities. Like it could, my battery could be dead, mm-hmm. and I don't know. And then the car doesn't move, for example, right? There, it, it, there could be some sort of mechanical difficulty um, that could cause that could cause me not to move forward. I could mistake the uh, gas pedal for the brake pedal or something, right? So. So even there, it, it's not 100% of the time that I'm going to slam into the car in front of me. It just happens to be almost all the time, you know, um, close to approaching 100% of the time that's going to happen. Sure. But but for most of the decisions that we make, there's a wider spread of the possibilities. So what we can think about is that we're, we're weighing options and we choose an option. And when we choose that option, what we've locked in is the set of possibilities. Mm-hmm. And what that set of possibilities looks like. And now there's an intervention of luck at that moment. Wow. So, so you could think about it like, um, I don't, if, if, you know, for someone who watches football, once the quarterback uh, releases the ball, right? So there's now, they've defined by releasing that ball and the way that they release it, through, that's all skill, right? The way that they release that ball They've defined now the probability of uh, a complete pass, an incomplete pass, or an interception. Mm-hmm. That's that's what they've now done. Um, and so we could say what the probability of that is. Obviously, the better the pass, the higher probability 
of uh, a complete pass, you know, the lower the probability of an incomplete pass, the worse the pass, the higher the probability of an incom- uh, of a interception, for example, you know, the lower the probability of a complete pass. But that's that's what you've done. But then what actually happens after that point is a matter. It really, that's an intervention of luck from the quarterback's perspective. Sure. Right. Um, so and, and there's all sorts of ways that we, we can. So so like in the simplest sense, if we're thinking about something uh, that that's really determined basically all by luck, if I roll a six sided dice, when I roll the dice that I've determined the set of possibilities of where that dice is going to land, it's going to be one, two, three, four, five or six. And each of those is going to occur one sixth of the time. And there's an intervention of luck that now determines which of those happens to occur, which is why I can't call the dice. I can't say I'm calling one and think that I'm going to get that right 100 percent of the time because uh, luck is intervening there and I don't have any control over that. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that kind of transitions into a similar thought process about Pete Carroll and the worst call in history, which you talk about as well. <laughs> <laughs> and it, they, these two ideas I think are synonymous. So the question is based on your description of what you said, which makes perfect sense. Like there's, there's only a certain amount of control that, that we have in decision-making, but then there's luck and then there's skill. <laughs> but about that call in, in football, you know, was it really a bad decision or was it was it just a bad outcome? What do you think about that? I'm curious. I'd, I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, so I, I think that this, this Super Bowl decision that occurs in 2015 when the Seahawks are playing the um, Patriots is actually a very good way for people to understand you know, like the difference between skill and luck. Mm -hmm. So just to remind the listeners what situation we're talking about, um, it's Super Bowl 49. It's the end of the game. And the Seahawks are down by four and they're on the one yard line of the Patriots. So, you know, they got, they have to move the ball one yard to score a touchdown. um, And obviously that's going to make them go ahead. And there's only 26 seconds left in the game. So, you know, we assume there's not going to be enough time for the Patriots to be able to score back. So this is really, this is the game right here. Like mm-hmm. if, the, if the Seahawks can score, they're going to win. Um, it's second down. So they've got three possible uh, downs to, to try to get it in. Uh-huh. Um, and Pete Carroll only has one timeout. So that's a little bit of a problem because they've got 26 seconds left. So obviously we've got a compression problem here. And, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out, like, what's my, what's my best chance of getting the, the score here against the Patriots? So in this particular case, there was an expected play. And the expected play was to hand it off to Marshawn Lynch. Oh, who, man. <laughs> yeah. So Mar- Marshawn Lynch is called the Beast. Yes, for uh, a very good reason, by the way. <laughs> yes. Uh, one of the greatest running backs of all time. Um, you know, and I, and, and this is, you know, there, there's convention in football. I mean, there, there are things that people expect you to do in football and, uh, this is one of those things and, and everybody thinks, okay, they're, you know, call for the handoff, have Marshawn Lynch, try to run it through the, the Patriots line. Mm-hmm. Well, Pete Carroll doesn't actually do that. Um, what he decides to do instead is to call for a pass play, um, into the uh, cor- the right corner of the end zone, the front. He doesn't throw it to the back of the end zone. He front- throws it to the front of the end zone. 
Um, well, Pete Carroll doesn't. He has he has Russell Wilson do that, obviously. Um, so he he calls for a pass play. Russell Wilson throws the ball, and Malcolm Butler of the Patriots um, intercepts this ball. So this is obviously a terrible outcome. Horrible, horrible. Horrible, horrible outcome because this is the end of the game, and the Patriots, <laughs> the whole country except anybody who lives in New England, is sad. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> So the Chris Collingsworth, when he's calling the game, is just you know saying I can't believe the call over and over again. Uh, obviously, saying he doesn't like it. Um, and then uh, the next day, when you look at the headlines from the major newspapers, they really agree. Mm-hmm. Um, the pundits are sort of having a battle between: is it the worst call in Super Bowl history, or is it the worst call in NFL history? But what's really interesting about all of these. Articles and there's a couple of exceptions. What Benjamin Morris uh, at 538, 538, not surprisingly, is taking a more measured view toward this. And then also, I think it was Brian Butler on Slate um, also takes a more measured view. But but the major, you know, when you're looking at USA Today and you know the Washington Post, oh yeah, so on and so forth, they're all saying this is this is a terrible play. But what's interesting is that when you actually look at these articles, they're not telling you the thing that I just told you about. Not at which all. Is, which is, okay, he, he calls for the pass play. What are the possible outcomes? And how often do those things occur? And particularly what we might want to know also is how often do those, you know, you know, touchdown, whatever, how, how does that compare, for example, to the, the choice that people wanted, which is to hand it off to um, Marshawn Lynch? I, instead of actually going through that stuff, and saying, well, let, let's ask, like, was this really a bad call, which would be in the skill category, right? Like, that's like he made a bad decision. Or, or was this kind of bad luck? And it's very hard to know that without thinking about, well, what were the set of outcomes and how often could they occur? And actually trying to sort of build that decision tree out. And they don't do that. Instead, what they do is something called resulting. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, look, you know, Stop it with your math, basically, although they don't say that explicitly. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> what, they not... say is I, what they say is I know that it was a bad call because I know yeah. that it turned out really poorly. Very it, poorly. It, right. <laughs> and if I know that it turned out really poorly, that tells me what I need to know. So, and we can sort of see what's happening here. So th- mm-hmm. this is something called resulting. Yeah. When we work backwards from the quality of the outcome to the quality of the decision. And we can, we, we can sort of see what's happening if I just ask you to do this thought experiment. So I want you to imagine that uh, Pete Carroll calls that same very unexpected play. And he calls for Russell Wilson to, to pass that ball. And it's caught for the game-winning touchdown in the end zone. Mm-hmm. You imagine that people are writing headlines the next day that say that it's the worst call in Super Bowl history. Probably not. I, I don't think so. I, what do you think they, that it actually looks like? It's the game-winning touchdown. They win the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. It's a win, not the worst call in history. Maybe if it had gone the other direction, that could be it. You know, I think it's biased, you know, in my opinion. Yeah, so I think the headlines actually become totally opposite. I think they say it's the best call in Super Bowl history. Interesting. <laughs> Could, and, yeah, I, I, I see your point. I do. It makes sense. And we kind of know that because we have examples where people do something unusual. Mm-hmm. 
and it works out and people call them a genius. It happened actually to Philadelphia two years later with the Philly special. Oh yeah, that's true. Right. So, so we kind of know, so that, so that's strange. So let's think about it this way. Like, let's say that you, that I roll a six sided die and you call six and it lands a four. If you give, if I give you the Pete Carroll treatment, I say, you're the worst dice caller in the history of dice calling. And let's say that I roll that same six sided dice at, and you call it six and it lands six. And I say, you're a genius dice caller. Mm-hmm. You're so good at this. I can't believe how amazing you are. Obviously that's absurd. Sure. And the reason why we understand that's absurd is because we know that when it comes to rolling die, a die, there, there, that there isn't any skill involved. So this is a com- completely due to luck. And so we're very willing to actually forefront the luck component there because we kind of understand there isn't any skill to it. Right. Right. And, not and really. Is, yeah. It's a very agreed upon decision. So we're not, I'm not giving you credit when it goes well. I'm not, you know, telling you you're an idiot when it goes poorly, <laughs> um, which is what they did. By the way, there was actually a headline that called Pete Carroll an idiot, which I remember that. So, so, so now let's take it to the Pete Carroll decision, right? When Pete Carroll calls that pass, he's defined the set of possible outcomes at that moment. And anything that happens after that doesn't really have anything to do with him. Mm-hmm. And certainly the way that that turns out doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the call. What has to do with the quality of the call is how often is the ball going to get caught for a touchdown? How often is it going to get uh, uh, to be an incomplete pass? Mm-hmm. And how often is it going to get intercepted? And what are the advantages to making that call versus handing off to Marshawn Lynch. So mm-hmm. super quick, I'll just I'll just tell you. Um, if I hand it off to Marshawn Lynch and Marshawn Lynch fails to score, the clock starts running, right? It's, it's running. And the only way for Pete Carroll to stop the clock is to call a timeout, which he'll have to do. And then he can hand it off to Marshawn Lynch again. And that's going to be the last try at the end zone. So if, you wa- if we agree that you want to hand it off to Marshawn Lynch twice and you do that twice in a row, you get two plays. That's mm-hmm. it because of clock management issues. But if you pass the ball, there's three possibilities. The first possibility is that it's caught for a touchdown. And we know that when that happens, Pete Carroll gets called a genius. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> right. When it's incomplete, there's a very important thing that happens. The clock stops on its own. Interesting. And yeah. when it cl- stops on its own, what can you then do? You can hand it off to Marshawn Lynch and if he fails, you can hand it off to Marshawn Lynch again because you can stop the clock with the timeout. So notice that what we can see now, once we start to actually think about it in terms of not just like, well, it had a bad outcome. We actually start to think about, well, what what was the math of that decision? Like what was going on with that decision? Now what we can see is, oh, that's interesting. If P. Carroll calls for a pass, he actually gets a chance at Marshawn Lynch twice when most of the way, time when the, the play fails, because most of the time that the play fails, it fails as an incomplete pass, which stops the clock. Mm-hmm. Now, there's this tiny little percentage of the time that it's going to end up as an interception. Yeah. So how we now judge the play is we say, what on balance are we getting, you know, for getting three tries at the end zone? Mm-hmm. Are we paying too much for that? And <laughs> 
Right. And the question then becomes how often is the ball intercepted? So if the ball is intercepted a very small percentage of the time, then it feels like that's a good price to pay to try to get to the end zone three times. Um, and if it's intercepted a lot, then maybe we're paying too high a price. So that's what we want to ask is what's the interception rate. And the interception rate is less than 2%. Wow. That is so technical. My mind is blown. I, you know, <laughs> as an outsider, I don't really think about those things, but I find it so interesting, but it makes perfect sense that the two would tie together. Now, you mentioned something about resulting, which I want to touch on that again, because I hadn't heard that term before until I read the book and the whole concept of hindsight bias. Now, can you explain that a little bit? Because I, I get the idea and the concept, but I would like to hear how you sort of expound on this or develop that thought a little bit, because I, I'm kind of going through my mind thinking about it, saying, well, I've kind of experienced this before a lot. I think every day almost I should have known better. I don't know whether it's a dating relationship mm -hmm. or a business decision. How does that play out in your life particular, that, that term hindsight bias? Yeah, so let, let me talk about resulting in hindsight bias as a pair of biases, right? So they, they, they kind of go together. And the way that they go together is both of them make it so that when we have an experience, right, when there's a result, when, when there's an outcome, that we uh, will learn the wrong lesson from the outcome. Yeah, for sure. So, so let's think broadly about this, right? In order to learn, uh, we need experience. Mm -hmm. So this is this is true at the poker table, right? In order for me to learn, I've got I need experience. I have to play, so I can study things in books, and I can you know that's experience. Mm -hmm. But then ultimately, I have to be at the table, and I'm winning or losing hands. You know, I'm betting and you're calling, or I'm betting and you're raising me, or I'm betting and you're folding, or whatever. And and these become the experience that builds um, my abilities, right? My my ability to learn. So. Uh, here's where we have a paradox and the paradox is that while experience is certainly necessary for learning, right? Like I need to have experience to be able to learn that any particular experience that I might have can actually, uh, hinder learning. Sure. Mainly because of this pair of biases, which is, um, resulting in hindsight bias. So resulting is what we just talked about. So resulting right. is saying, if I know how it turned out, Right. If it's if it's a good result, I can work. Then it must have been a good decision. And mm -hmm. if it's a bad result, it must have been a bad decision. So the reason why that's actually really bad for learning is that because of this intervention of luck, right? Because sometimes the ball just gets intercepted. Like, what could you do? Um, <laughs> yeah. We're we're, we're going to now learn uh, uh, bad lessons in a few ways. Uh, way number one is that sometimes we have good results from very bad decisions. Mm -hmm. Right. So I could, um, I mean, I guess the classic would be like, I could drive home drunk and get home safely. And I have actually heard people say, well, I drive better when I'm drunk. Yeah. I like, hear that all what? the time, which is, that is like the most insane thing that you could say. I, I don't know how that it's even right. possible. Demonstrably not true. Scientifically not true. No, it's just not true. Tell so, a CHP officer that when you get pulled over right. and see what no, happens. No, it's fine because I, right. I drive better when I'm drunk. So, but that's, that's classic resulting. It's like basically somebody saying, well, I've gotten home perfectly safely. And so therefore I must be a good driver when I'm drunk. Mm -hmm. So that, that's like a classic case where you're learning a very bad lesson from the outcome that you get. Right. And we, and we do stuff like that all the time. You know, it's like 
maybe we have a, a sales strategy and we happen to close a sale and we're like, I clearly made really great decisions. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it was just that that person loved your product and it didn't have anything to do with your strategy at all. Right. For example, like, so we don't, we don't, th this causes us to reinforce decisions that maybe shouldn't be reinforced when we have a good result. On the flip side, when we have a bad result, we assume, we, we say it must have been a bad decision. And now all of a sudden people are, are not passing the ball in Pete Carroll's decision. In such, it, it, like you take Pete Carroll's situation and now people won't pass the ball there, even though I just told you it's mathematically correct mm -hmm. because they saw the bad outcome and they say, well, therefore it must be a bad decision. So, so that happens as well. And then there's kind of a third way that resulting causes you to go wrong, which is you have a really good outcome you, you sort of look and you say, oh, well, I must have made a really good decision. And then you stop and you don't look to see if there was a better, there was, if there was an even better decision in there. Mm -hmm. Right. So, okay. So, so that's one way that it goes wrong is this resulting saying, if I know the outcome that tells me the decision quality. So that's that bias. Hindsight bias is slightly different, but it works in tandem and hindsight bias, uh, uh, works in two ways. It's when you have an outcome, feeling one of two things. The first thing would be, I knew it. I knew, I knew that was going to happen. So you, which of course you don't, right? So, um, this happens all the time. It's like you, you do something, it goes badly and you say, I, I knew that was going to happen. Why, why did I choose that? I knew it, you know, or it turns out really well. And you say, I knew I was going to win that. I, you know, uh, I'm so, you know, it's, it's this idea, it's called creeping determinism. Mm -hmm. um, it's this idea that somehow, uh, the outcome was inevitable. And so what comes from sometimes the outcome was inevitable is either you get this memory creep where you feel like you did actually know that that was going to happen when you didn't, or, uh, you get this feeling of, I should have known where you beat yourself up. How could I have not seen that coming? I should have known that was going to happen. So now you can see now how you're going to also take a really bad lesson because of hindsight bias. So what hindsight bias is doing to you is making you feel like the thing that happened was inevitable. Interesting. When, as I just told you, anything, for pretty much anything that happens, it's not inevitable there's a whole set of possibilities that can happen. And one of the things in order for us to become good learners is that we have to recognize that there are things we know before we make a decision and then things we, we know after the decision has played out. And that in that set of stuff that we know after the decision of play, has played out, there's a whole bunch of stuff that there's, there, we couldn't have known beforehand at all. There's no way we could have known it beforehand. One of those things is the actual outcome that actually occurs, right? Mm -hmm. You can't know it's actually going to end up in an interception, right? All you can know is that it could be caught, you know, incomplete or, or intercepted. You, but it feels like we do know that. And so then all of a sudden, as we're thinking about how do we become better decision makers, we're getting this, you know, we have to be able to sort of take the outcome and then deconstruct the decision process. And in order to do that, we actually have a, have to have a clear view of both what we knew beforehand and how often the result that we got was going to happen. And hindsight bias kind of ruins both of those things. 
because it makes us, it, it distorts our view of how often we think the result was going to happen. And it uh, messes with our clear eyed view of what we know when we made, what we knew when we made the decision. Is there a way that we can work ourselves out of that bias or is that just sort of innate as we are as human beings in your opinion, or how do we figure that out and sort of come up with a way to, to work through that if that makes any sense? Yeah. So, so the answer to the, so you just asked, you just sort of asked an either or like, can we address the bias or is it just innate? And this is the way that we're kind of programmed. And the answer to both of those is yes. <laughs> so Fair it's enough. not really an either or. So this is the way we're built. So, so here, here's the kind of bad news side of things, but there's a sunny side coming. The bad news is that you're, this is mostly what you're going to do. So mostly when you get an outcome, this is the way that you're going to process those outcomes. You're going to have a tendency to result. Um, and you're going to have a tendency toward hindsight bias. And it's a pretty strong tendency and you can, and you can show up very reliably in people. The good news is that there are things that you can do to address it. Um, so when you get an outcome, so this would be retrospectively. Mm -hmm. When you get an outcome, it's really good as you're trying to parse that apart for you to write down, what did I know at the time of the decision? What revealed itself after the fact? And actually write that stuff down, right? So that you can see like if all of a sudden somehow like how it actually turned out ends up in the list of things you knew beforehand, you know you should cross that off, but that's silly, right? So, so try to do that, that just track your knowledge, right? And say, what, well, what did I really know? What was the information that inform that was informing my decision? What revealed itself after the fact? And now what you can do is, is start to actually learn something from that, which is to say, when I'm looking at the things that revealed itself or that I sort of figured out after the fact, was there anything in there that I could have known before the decision? Most of that, the answer is going to be no. But some of it, the answer is going to be yes. And now you can use that in order to inform the next decision of the type. So now that actually creates learning, right? Instead of beating yourself up, mm -hmm. you're now thinking about, well, what's, what is the stuff that I could bring to bear on the next decision that I have to make? That's thing number one you can do is actually write, do this knowledge tracking. Thing number two is to actually say to yourself, and this, this is very helpful for both resulting and for hindsight bias to say, what was the set of possible things that could have actually occurred, right? So what happens with both hindsight bias and resulting is that the result that you got looms too large. It takes up your whole field of vision. So if you take the time to say, hold on a second, I need to actually think about this outcome in context. The main context that you want is to actually try to figure out, well, what were the possibilities? That's what I did with the Pete Carroll play, right? I'm sitting there and I'm saying, oh my gosh, that was definitely gonna end up in an interception. But then when I step back and I say, well, hold on a second, let me think of all the different ways that that play could have turned out. So now I can write those down and then I can go look up the statistics and I can say, well, how often were those things going to occur? And now all of a sudden I shrunk that outcome back down to its actual size, right? It's Absolutely. no longer taking up my whole field of vision. Instead, it's, it's, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at it and I'm going, whoa, wait a minute, hold on a second. That thing was only 2%. That's really like what Benjamin Morris did over on 538 is he, he reconstructed, like, let's think about all the ways that this could have turned out and how often would they have occurred. So by actually doing that work, you allow yourself to now see that outcome in context. So that's retrospectively. But now let's think, what if you did that while you were actually making a decision and you 
wrote it down in a journal. So while you were actually making the decision, you actually wrote down, Here, here's the knowledge that I'm using to inform this decision. And you wrote that down. You said, here's what I think, right? And then you said, here are the options that I was comparing. Mm-hmm. Here's the ways that I think that those are going to turn out. Here, you know, here's how much I like each of those things. And here's how often I think those are going to occur. And you actually wrote it down. Now, when you get an outcome, you don't have to sort of try to go back and reconstruct that. You can actually just go look at it. Absolutely. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So many things to think about and good information, especially if you're an entrepreneur and you're listening. These are things that you can take and, and apply. And one last concept that, that I would love to talk about is the, the thought of life is poker, not chess, which makes sense because that's the world that you come from. And, and I get that. And I love it. I, I, I really think that's such a, valu- a valuable thing to, to consider. I've heard people say life is chess. Life is this, a move, a move, <laughs> a move, a move. Having spoken to you and your counterpart, Alec, and all of that, it poker seems to be the thing that stands out the most. It really is. <laughs> so all of this you're thinking while you're playing in the World Series of Poker and all of that, this is all going through your head. I feel like my brain would explode if I was trying to process all of this at once, but it makes sense that you were obviously successful at it. So let's talk about that idea as we wrap up here. Life is like poker, not chess. Um, It's based on a foundation called Game Theory, if you're not familiar, listeners, which you can Google that, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit here. Let's, Let's get your perspective on that because I think that's important as a practicality thing for for entrepreneurs listening, for business owners who listen, which is a large part of my audience, how can we take that idea and just boil it down into something very practical to use every day? So, yeah, so here's the, you know, so I agree. People are always like, oh, they're playing three-dimensional chess or they they always use use chess as the 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 analogy for like the great decision makers. So, so I'm, I can, I think I can show you pretty quickly why, why life isn't too much like, so let's say that, you know, like Dylan and Morgan play a chess game Mm -hmm. and Dylan beats Morgan in this chess game, but you, Brett, you haven't watched it. Correct. So, so you haven't actually watched them play the game. So you haven't seen the decision-making that occurred. But you know that Dylan beat Morgan. That's the only thing that you know. So let me ask you, if, if I tell you, hey, Dylan, they, they played chess and Dylan beat Morgan, uh, who was the better decision-maker there? What's your answer? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it would probably, well, I guess it kind of depends. I, I would say Morgan, but... Wait, no, Dylan beat Morgan. Or no, Morgan. Dylan Dylan is the, the decision maker. He's the one that figured things out and was able to correct. win, I, in my correct. opinion. so No, that, that's, that's correct. You would be right to say so. Dylan made better decisions. Okay, overall. Great. Okay, so now let's think about this in terms of a, a life situation. Dylan is driving on the road. That's all you know. And I tell you, Dylan got in an accident. That's all you know. Dylan got in an accident. So let me ask you a question. Was it Dylan's fault? I don't know. I don't know. That's why life is not like like chess. Because in chess, when you know that that Morgan lost to Dylan, 
right? Morgan got in a car accident, right? That's what happened to Morgan, right? Now you know that Morgan's decision-making was not good. Mm -hmm. But when when all I tell you is an outcome in life, right? In, in mo almost any decision that you make, in, in, you know, in life's decision-making, you don't know that anymore. So for example, like if I say to you, uh, you know, Dylan closed the sale, it, you know, did Dylan make, uh, you know, the best decisions along the way to closing that sale? Our answer is, I don't know. You have to tell me what Dylan did. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the reason, the reason that that is, is that uh, chess is missing some stuff that poker is missing, right? That, that poker has rather very prominently. So, so in poker, we have the same thing, right? If, if like Dylan and Morgan play a half hour of poker and Dylan wins, and that's all you know. You can't really say very much about Dylan's decision making compared to Morgan's. We really kind of don't know because we didn't watch the game. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that what what poker has that chess doesn't have is two things. Poker has a very very prominent influence of hidden information. So in other words, if you and I are playing poker, I can't see your cards, and you can't see my cards. And so there's information that's hidden from view. Um, and so we're making uh, decisions with this uncertainty, mm -hmm. right? That I, I don't, I don't exactly know what you have, and one would assume that the better player among the two of us is going to be better in the long run at getting closer to what what the other person is holding, uh, you know, narrowing down that range a little bit better. But neither of us can know for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that now in chess, obviously, I get to see all of your pieces. What that means is that for any move that I'm contemplating, I can see all the responses that you could possibly make. Mm -hmm. And then given all of those responses that you could possibly make, I can now figure out the response that I would make to your move. And I don't, I've, it's all right in front of me. Okay. So, so that's a difference. And then the second thing that's different between poker and chess is this element of luck in, in uh, chess, there isn't this very, very prominent role of luck, certainly no. not in the sense that you roll the dice the dice come up, you know, you roll an 11 and now someone takes two of your pawns off the board. In poker, obviously, there is a very prominent influence of luck. I, I don't have control over the cards that are going to come. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that um, this connection between decision quality and outcome quality in chess is very, very tightly correlated. If I make good decisions, well, relative to you, if I make good decisions relative to you, I will win. But in poker, if I make good decisions relative to you, all I can say is I will win in the long run. Mm -hmm. I cannot say I will win in the short run. That's a lot more like life's decisions. Now, getting to game theory, game theory is the study of decision-making under uncertainty. And specifically, these two types of uncertainty, hidden information where there's information asymmetry. We don't know stuff. You know, we don't have perfect information. Mm -hmm. and, and also luck. And the fact that poker happens to really sort of sound a lot like this game theory is not accidental. Because the person who really developed game theory, that framework, uh, whose name is um, John von Neumann, Based the mathematics of game theory on a simplified version of poker. He was asked by a colleague of his, Jacob Bernofsky, um, why didn't you base this on chess? For the reason that everybody thinks, right? Like we do say, oh, you know, they're playing seven levels deep at chess or whatever. They're 
you know, three-dimensional chess. So she said, why didn't, I don't, game theory is interesting. It's a very interesting framework that you've developed, but um, why didn't you base it on chess? And but Norman's response was basically chess isn't a game. It's really, it's really, <laughs> he, he said it's really a kind of a computing power problem, right? That mm -hmm. I um, could see that maybe. Right. That you, you know, if I have a really powerful computer, the computer could figure out all possible moves to the end of the game. Yeah. Um, and I think, well, I mean, if you're playing chess online, I think it kind of does that in a way. Right. Or even yeah. poker. Well, I don't know if it's the same, but it, you know, I've never played online poker, so I can't speak to that. But I've played online chess, so I could see how that could make sense. Wow, so interesting, so interesting. So yeah, so we what we want to just recognize is that instead of, I think that one of the problems that we have as decision makers is that we are uncomfortable with this uncertainty. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that we we want things to make sense. I think that we want outcomes to not be random. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we want to be able to know why something happened the way that it did, for mm -hmm. sure. I think that we don't like really thinking about the fact that, you know, in some ways our, our lives are not our own responsibility. I mean, when you look at like, you know, particularly when you're talking about like business, for example, or startups, right? And who are all the books written about, right? They're all written by the startups that survived. And then everybody's saying, well, if I do the things that those startup people did, then I'll definitely be successful. And that's a really good example of the, the backgrounding of luck mm -hmm. and the foregrounding of skill. And you see, you'll see all these articles like, you know, uh, most billionaires, uh, you know, the, the habits of, billionaires and it'll be like they get up at 4 a.m oh gosh don't even you know? get me started about that <laughs> and then all of a sudden now regular people are like well if i get up at 4 a.m i'll become a billionaire too and oh it's like, gosh i actually think they're getting up at 4 4 a.m as an artifact of being a billionaire because they're they're quite busy but um yeah but no, yeah get, get sleep that would be good but but i think that this <laughs> is a problem and, and and what we're not looking at is for every for every startup that succeeds there's stuff that they did well and stuff they did poorly right and places they got lucky and places they got unlucky. We mm -hmm. know that if they succeeded, they had more good luck than bad luck. That, that's the thing that we know. But we know that some of that was just some stuff broke their way. Yeah, of know? course. Yeah. But when you look at the writing about it, you nobody talks about the stuff that broke their way. No. Right? But when you, when you, you look at the startups that failed, it's the same thing. They made some good decisions. They made some bad decisions. Some stuff broke their way. Some stuff didn't break their way. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, in the case of the startups that fail, we know that there was probably more stuff that broke their way, uh, that broke didn't break their way, rather, that, that where they had bad luck. And we know that among the startups that failed, there are some where it was mo more due to you know bad decisions. But there's lots and lots and lots of startups that fail where they failed having made very good decisions. So when you look at the startup world, it really looks a lot like poker, right? Like sometimes I win because I have the very best hand and I play it great mm -hmm. and things go my way. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Have to go my way, right? So that would be a startup that succeeds. Sometimes I win 
because I actually have a pretty poor hand and I don't play it very well, but things happen to really go my way. There are startups that have succeeded for that reason as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Sometimes I lose when I have the very best hand and I play it really well, but there's a bad turn of the card. There are startups that fail for that reason. And sometimes I lose because I have a pretty poor hand and I play it very poorly. And I also in there don't happen to get lucky. Right. And there are startups that fail that way. So we know that all four possibilities are true, but what do we read about? All we read about is the startups that succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> and all we read about is how they had a great hand and they played it amazing. Right. And I'm just sitting here thinking as you're talking, if I watched all of your tournaments on TV and you wrote a book on poker and how you were so successful, if I followed all that to the T, there is no guarantee that I would be able to replicate <laughs> your success or another Zuckerberg or a whoever that created this and whoever that created that. So I think that's a very valid point. And I think that those are some good concepts for us to 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 keep in mind because you're right. You know, you read about all the positive stuff, but they're all the bad stuff. I liked your comment about the 4 a.m. thing. You know, that's <laughs> that's not like, that's not necessarily right. what made them rich is that they got no, up at 4 a.m. No, that, that may be an artifact of, you know, that yeah. be something that came afterwards. But like like we, we can think about it really simply this way. I mean, just in terms of the influence of luck. Right. Um, so an example from my life is I don't know that I would have been so successful at poker if I didn't happen to enter the game at the time that I did. Sure. So I entered the game at a time when it wasn't played online. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that you played, the strategies that succeeded were very different than the strategies and the way that you might succeed now. And if I entered the game right now, I might be terrible. Because it's a totally different game now, right? So, so I'm not sure about that. So there, there's something about I just came of age at a particular time, and I certainly didn't have control over that. And we can extend that to someone who's an incredibly successful entrepreneur like, like Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. Bill Gates had a particular skill. He was really good at computers. And he was really good at computers at a time when nobody had one. They weren't ubiquitous. Like everybody wasn't sitting here with their laptop. Everybody didn't have a phone. You know, it was like you had a phone that was plugged into a wall by a cord. (laughs) And the people who were were doing computers at that time were like, they were either, you know, you either had those huge computers that would look at a university or at IBM that literally took up a whole room. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, that and they had uh, you know punch cards or like vacuum tubes and stuff, right? Or there were people who were starting <laughs> to like build computers by a kit. And Bill Gates happened to come of age at a time when this thing that he was really good at was something that hadn't been um, leveraged yet, right? It hadn't been uh, scaled yet. Mm-hmm. It hadn't gotten into everybody's hands. Now, what if he came of age now? Would uh, he be a gazillionaire? I don't know. It's hard to say. Know. It's very hard to say. It it seems unlikely, right? I mean, he, he came of age at just the right time for the skill set that he had. So, and by the way, if you had him go and do that again, right? If you re-ran it, if you said, let's start fresh. Remember, there were other people who were obviously tinkering around with computers. If you start fresh, he might, you know, maybe the ball gets pat, you know, caught this time, or maybe it gets intercepted this time. Like if you did it fresh, it's not guaranteed that he ends up building Microsoft. No, not at all. And I think that's, that's the thing that we have to remember. And I think part of the reason why we don't remember that well 
is that it, it feels really good to take credit for our own successes. Yeah, absolutely. And acknowledging the role of luck means that you don't get credit for the good decisions that you made. But of course, you can still take credit for the good decisions that you made, even though there was a big influence of luck. And I think that we extend that when we look at somebody like Bill Gates. Because if we want to feel like we get to take credit for our own decisions, then when we look at big Bill Gates, we want to give him credit for those decisions too, because then it feels like we can we could do that as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a certain amount of comfort in that. But I'm perfectly willing to say I was really lucky in terms of the time that I, you know, the, the period of time that I entered poker. And given that I had this lucky break occur, I made very good decisions. I did very well in the game. That's my own responsibility. Mm-hmm. But, but, but there was this huge influence of luck in terms of just what was the state of the game at the time that I came and played. I don't think that takes away from my decision. No. And you can, you can take this so far in, in the sense of saying, like for me, as an example, if I had been born 100 years earlier, I would never, ever have been able to have the career that I have just by an accident of birth. I got, I was born at a time when it was totally normal for women to go to college. Mm-hmm. For example, it was totally normal for women not to, you know, get married when they were 20 and just start having kids and stay at home, which is a perfectly good choice. But I had lots of other choices that were available to me that wouldn't have been available to me necessarily if I had even been born 20 years earlier than I was. Very true. Wow. Yeah, I think those are all super valid points. And and I just want to say thank you for for joining today and uh, lots of information to to process for sure. If people want to get your book, which they should, or read about you or learn more about you, Annie, what would be the best way for people to connect with you? Um, Yeah, so uh, thanks for asking that. I appreciate that. And I really do like to hear from people uh, who have read my book or listened to me or whatever it might be. So I, so I hope that people will take advantage of the information I'm about to give. Um, well, first of all, you can find me on Twitter at, um, at Annie Duke. And, uh, I, I post on there pretty regularly. Um, then, uh, the main, uh, place to find me would be at, um, AnnieDuke.com. Uh, and AnnieDuke.com is my website and that's a place you can contact me. You can write to me through there. I do respond. Um, I have a newsletter, you can look at archives of the newsletter and decide whether you want to subscribe. Uh, and then the other place that you can find me is at, through my charity. Um, so I co-founded How I Decide, um, which is uh, what we're trying to do is to build the field of decision education for youth. We actually are just about to go through a name change to the Alliance for Decision Education uh, whether you type in how I decide or the, the Alliance for Decision Education, you'll be able to find us either way. And what we're trying to do is, is basically say these, these, this type of way of thinking about the world, that the education around making decisions that I think people in business are starting to really read a lot in this space through like, you know, Daniel Kahneman thinking fast and slow and uh, reading uh, Michael Mabison's work or Phil Tetlock's work or Dan Ariely or Richard Thaler or Cass Sunstein. You know, I think there's, so much work that's the the Heath brothers, for example. I mean, there, I I could go on and on. There's so much work in this space. Um, uh, they're starting to read resources like Farnham Street 
uh, and really understand that decision making is really important. And a lot of businesses are bringing in like behavioral units, but this isn't in our K through 12 education at all. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist. And we feel like this is really important all the way from understanding when are you calm enough to make a decision, you know, to habit formation and how do we think about our own habits to decision biases and how do we really think about our own thinking? How do we process information? How do we figure out what's true and not true to probabilistic thinking? And we think this should be taught in every single school. And that's what we're trying to do. So I hope people will really check out that. Well, thank you, Annie, for being a part of the show. And all of her information will be available in our show notes. Annie, thank you for joining me today. I really do appreciate your time. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you. This was really fun. All right, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was a fun episode. I hope you enjoyed it and benefit from it as well. Be sure to pick up Annie's book. All of that information will be available in the show notes, how you can contact her. I highly recommend it. I again tell you she will respond. Have a good weekend, everybody. That brings today's episode to a close. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed today's episode, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a kind rating and review. It really does help. Until next time, cheers and be well.